Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome to day two of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and welcome to the Bill James Room for this panel, Metrics Are the Mic, Football Analytics. I'm Chris Tinsley. I'm a first-year MBA student at Sloan, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's panel. Today we have Kevin Demoff, COO of the Rams, Warren Sharp, founder of Sharp Football Analysis, and Karim Kassam, director of analytics and the coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Moderating this panel will be Mina Kimes, senior writer at ESPN. Now don't shoot the messenger pigeon, but Saquon and Sashi were forced to drop out of today's panel. Sorry to have to give you that news. Again, don't shoot the messenger pigeon. Uh, for any questions, feel free to use the hashtag FootballAnalytics. This panel will run for approximately 50 minutes, and we'll reserve uh, the last five or 10 minutes or so for Q&A. And with that, Mina, take it away. Great. Hi. Thank you for coming, and yeah, apologies for our missing panelists, but we'll have a lot more time for these guys, and then also to take some of your questions at the end. Um, Kevin is the familiar face from last year, but you know it is interesting even just over a year, I guess, later to think about how the conversation about football and analytics has changed, not just amongst people like us who really care about these things, but in the media, the way games are called and announced amongst players, people who work in teams, it kind of feels like it's no longer that we're in a defensive crouch. No, we really, we care about it too, just like the other sports. It, it feels like we're now at a point where we can talk about best practices, what's working, what's not working, how teams are using analytics. So we'll get through all of that today, and I'm excited to have you guys. Um, I thought to start, a good place would be just kind of to talk a little bit about the landscape in the NFL. We've got an outsider perspective and two insiders, I guess two outsiders, two insiders. And, you know, just talk about how it's changed over the last few years, where we're at now. And I thought, Krim, it'd be a good place to start with you because you came to Pittsburgh, it was five years ago, right? Yep. Yeah, so I've been, uh, been with the Steelers for five years now. I consulted a little bit with the Jaguars before then. and. Uh, when I started, I would say that there were around a dozen teams that had someone like me uh, in an analytics role, purely analytics role, uh, and now virtually every team has. Uh, so that's over five years. And, and even though you know, doubling, tripling the number of people that are doing analytics on NFL teams over five years doesn't feel slow, but it, it does feel a little bit incremental compared to what's happening in the last year. That um, since... Uh, 10 months ago when the NFL released next-gen statistics mm -hmm. for the teams, um, you, you can start seeing an inflection point where teams are ramping up, they're hiring a little bit more, they're investing a little bit more. Uh, all of analytics, it depends on the data that you have. And when we got next-gen stats, we now have roughly a million times more data than we've had before. So um, it's an exciting time for, for, to be in the NFL because of that. 
Kevin, do you feel like the variance is sort of narrowing between teams? Do you feel like there's not as much of a competitive advantage? You know, I, I don't know that that's true yet because I think the teams that started earlier will be ahead, right? And I think the teams that can figure out next-gen stats, I think that's the race for teams to try to figure it out. I think the better question ultimately is what are we trying to use the analytics for in teams? Is it, we talked team building, is it coaching decisions? But it's also just, there's so many, the game changes so fast that by the time you catch up on one area, the game may have shifted to, to something else. And so I think it's trying to stay ahead of it, but it's mostly a mindset more than it is the holy grail that's going to get you to a Super Bowl or make a quarterback a right. Pro Bowl versus average. It's a mindset of how you blend it into everything you do and are you weaving it throughout your organization as a positive tool. Not every decision you make is going to be right, but are you making the best efforts you can with the data that you have? Right. So you feel like that's where the variance really is in terms of the embrace, whether or not teams are actually listening to their analytics departments, for example. Look, I think you, you always listen to them when they're right, <laughs> and you blame them when they're wrong. But, you know, I think there are so many elements, and I'm curious to hear Warren's perspective, because not only are teams getting smarter, we see all the outside information, too. So, I mean, we can follow everything that's available online. I think almost every team now subscribes to Pro Football Focus and gets their data, and it's not even as much for, you know, is my right guard any good? But they're so useful at helping to identify formations and plays and cut down the time. Our coaches used to do that manually. And so all these other services are providing something that you blend into your ultimate pot that wind up making a difference. You may not use them for the purpose that the company sets them out for, but they wind up in your formula some way, somehow. Warren, I want to get your thoughts on that and from an outside view, you know, how you see whether analytics are informing or not informing, it seems, sometimes. But first, I want to just get a sense of how you got into this in the first place. Because as I understand, you only recently sort of started focusing on football full time. Yeah, I, uh, my background is uh, in engineering, civil engineering. So I studied that at school and uh, got my professional engineering license and did that for years. But on the side, I was involved in creating models for sports betting and trying to beat the Vegas line and uh, having some success doing that. But then I got a little bit more into the analytics world. Uh, obviously, I was aware of Pro Football Focus, Football Outsiders, but I just wanted the raw data. I wanted the raw data to start working with myself, uh, testing some of my hypothesis that I had of different things. And uh, that was a big step for me. I got that raw data. I started uh, a website, Sharp Football Stats, that publishes that data in a visualized manner for people to kind of play around with. Um, and then, I started sharing my findings, and that's the great thing about Twitter and the age that we live in right now. Um, if you provide great content that's new and innovative and creative, then people out there are looking at it, teams included. Um, so teams started reaching out to me, interested in some of my information. I was consulting with a team last season. Uh, I'll be doing that again this season for about four teams uh, and talking to many others on the side of that. So uh, it, it definitely... It's, this is my passion. You know, it, I, I look at engineering and transition it into this as uh, solving a problem. Engineers are problem solvers by nature, and the problem is how do we increase efficiency, not just in the play calling on both sides of the ball, but also in the front office, the organization itself, yeah. every decision that gets made. So I follow you on Twitter. He's a great follow. And, you know, you have all these, you share a lot of your thoughts about in-game decision-making, play calling, seems that kind of thing. From an outsider's point of view, and you guys can counter this, does it seem to you like teams are increasingly making more analytically driven choices when it comes to in-game decision making? 
Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question to piggyback on something Kevin said about the more information in our teams going in the, is it, is it kind of getting, narrowing the gap a little bit? I think it actually might be doing something opposite. I think it might be making it more of an advantage for those teams that are using the data and the teams that aren't using the data are gonna fall further behind. And right now I don't get the sense that every single team is using the data as, as much as it, as much as they probably could, but hopefully we get there soon. I mean, this is a, we know that the NFL is behind a lot of the other leagues and I think that they will get there. But in terms of what I've seen, like from last season, for example, I, I do think teams are making smarter decisions overall. Last season was the first year that we actually saw teams pass the ball on first and tens in the first half at above a 51% clip. Even five, 10 years ago, that was down at like a 47, 48% clip. Passing is more efficient. Teams were passing the football more often on those first and tens, and we actually saw the completion rate go up tremendously. Uh, it was like down at the 62% range on first and tens in the first half, went up to 67%. We saw record-breaking yards per attempt on those passes as well, 8.2 yards per attempt. So um, first down passing uh, in the first half, also passing to running backs out of the backfield, uh, also even different decisions on first downs when they chose to run the football. We saw a big uptick in the amount of running out of 11 personnel. Mm -hmm. uh, running out of 11 personnel spreads the defense out. Um, we saw, I believe it was 41% of all first and 10 runs in the first half were out of 11 personnel in 2017. Last year, that was up to 49%. That's a huge jump from 41% up to 49%. More teams running out of those formations as opposed to you know, 12 or 21, sometimes even teams 22 personnel where you're limiting the wide receivers. Uh, when you're running the ball out of downs that are good to pass the ball out of, uh, you know, there, are, there are problems with that, but um, they, they at least were making good decisions when they chose to run the ball. So I think right. we're headed in the, the right are... direction. We just have a long way to go. Well, how do you guys feel about that? Like, do you, so obviously we're coming off of an explosion in offense. Your own teams are you know, part of that trend. Do you, Warren just kind of spoke to some of the analytically driven decision-making and play calling that I, I think can clearly, uh, at least clearly plays a role in that. How do you feel in terms of the relationship between teams being smarter, being more numbers driven, and what we've seen on the field in terms of offense over the last year. I see a lot of the stuff that, that uh, Warren was talking about. I think, uh, I'm not sure if it means converging strategies or, or diversification. Yeah. I think part of analytics um, plays, a, plays a role in it, and, and a lot of it is this availability of information. So um, some of that is the numbers, a lot of it is the film. So now coaches can get college film and college coaches can get high school film, and what you see is um, a play that might work on a Saturday, the next week, the Sunday, you'll see it in the NFL. And the game is evolving very, very quickly. So I think analytics is part of that, be able to see the trends, um, to identify patterns a little bit, uh, a little bit more quickly. Uh, but the biggest source of information still for the NFL is uh, what's driving, I think, is, is film study. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think it's probably a good point on the film, although I think there's a macro trend, right? The game is shifting to offense. And so when you look at, I think, from a team perspective, the players you're getting from college, the offenses are simpler. Yeah. I mean, they're doing different things. I think people are learning how to utilize that into their world, and they're adopting those players into their system and trying to make it simpler. But as we score more points and the game tilts more to offense, you're getting more offensive head coaches. And I think you're seeing that with the trend. More offensive head coaches are more likely to do more innovative things on offense. And I wouldn't know the numbers right now, but I would imagine we're – 
We're probably getting closer to two-thirds of the head coaches in the league are offensive-minded versus defensive-minded. I feel like two-thirds of them know Sean McVay. <laughs> then it would be three-quarters. So. <laughs> but I think you get to, to this point where, you know, when you talk about people going for it more on fourth and one, like, I think part of that's like Sean just wants the ball more. Like, yeah. it's not that he thinks that going for fourth and one necessarily, he understands the math, but he really just wants more plays. Like, that's his goal when he goes for it on, on fourth and one. And that's his offensive mindset. But, you know, you may come in from an era where defensive coaches obviously played it safer because they trusted their defense. Like, all those things. And I think you're getting to a point now where the league is gaining in being smarter about formations and usage and yards per attempt because it's offensive guys trying to get more yards, trying to score more points, as opposed to having a more even balance of, of coaches at the head coaching spot. So having more offensive-minded coaches leading to some of the trends that we're talking about that have favored the offense. But, I mean, when you look at, I don't know, the three teams that used play action the most last year were you guys, the Rams, the Chiefs, and the Patriots. Worked out pretty well, I would say. Like, do you think that there's a, there's a bound on that? Like, you know, at a certain point, you, that stops being a competitive edge for those teams? Or, I mean, it's curious to me that we see these things happen so often, some of the trends that Warren spoke to, and yet still there are teams around the league that aren't really embracing them. Well, I, I think it's a shame. I mean, with play action, for example, there's, you can literally, and I don't know that Sean might have talked about this before, but you could literally call play action every single time that you're dropping back to pass the football. I think there needs to be, uh, more open-mindedness within the NFL as to what's acceptable, you know? And, and I think we're getting, unfortunately, uh, historically, there was this fear that, you know, if I go for it on fourth down here, what are the guys in the media gonna grill me over them? What's the yeah. tone of the articles going to be the very next week? And uh, what's the pressure that's going to be put on my job security? Uh, but now we're getting much more open-mindedness. I think a lot of the coaches out there are coming out after games and saying this was an analytically correct decision. The numbers were played in our favor for this right. case. And then uh, there's less pressure for them to uh, bear the burden of those decisions because they're trusting in the process of the numbers. Um, so, I mean, with play action, we need to do more of it. Some teams are ahead of the curve, uh, like you guys, and that's to their benefit. Um, but in terms of the rest of the teams and, and some of their decision-making and strategies and comfort levels, I mean, some teams really do need to come a long way. But there's a number of things besides just play action that needs to increase around the league for us to, uh, I mean, just easy efficiency, like layups in efficiency that teams just aren't taking advantage of. We talked to, I, I asked you, and I have to share this with the crowd because it's a constant sort of debate, source of debate or, uh, discussion in the analytics community, do you think the running game affects play action? I, I, I still, I mean, I, I pay attention to everything that happens like online in the analytics community and there's some, um, you know, some evidence to suggest that like maybe it, it affects the, uh, the running game affects the passing game and play action less than what we might expect, but um, I haven't seen any sort of like killer Definitive. analysis that makes me think like it's going to have zero effect. I think we still need to look and it, you know, it, it makes it just makes so much sense that it um, that if you if you completely say say uh, all 32 teams stop running uh, next year. Now, obviously, right. your play action is going to be uh, not very effective after that. So there is a limit. Um, it takes a while for for players and teams and scheme to sort of adjust to that type of thing. Uh, and it's it's sort of it, it's non-trivial to make that adjustment. I think uh, we accept in some ways in other sports. So if um, if a, a, a batter in baseball, if he has a particular type of swing, 
um, and he has a particular type of swing plane, it doesn't work against uh, a pitcher he's facing, we don't expect him to change his, his swing. And in the same way, I think like how a defense operates, they're going to evolve from week to week. Obviously, they, it's necessary that they do, but it's not, it's not unlimited in how much they can evolve. Um, so I think you're going to see that evolution. I don't think we've reached the limit at which play action is going to be useful. I think sort of like you're probably going to see uh, more play action next year, uh, but eventually we will get to that point. Kevin, I'm going to ask you to defend Saquon's honor on behalf of all running backs, but we're actually more generally talk about just, you know, obviously you guys have one of the higher paid running backs in the NFL. The highest paid. The highest paid. <laughs> For now. For now. Uh, you know, the, the views of the position have changed. The way the position is used, the expectations, the way you guys use them has changed. And a lot of that is driven by analytics and, and some of the stuff Warren was talking about earlier. How do you see the running back in 2020 compared to even, you know, five years ago? Well, I think the running back in 2020, the ones who are higher paid, the ones who have, have to be just as effective as pass catchers as running backs, right? They have to be, we talk about it as an offensive weapon. It shouldn't matter where you line up, that you're comfortable that they can score. And one of the reasons we love Todd so much is he can take the ball anywhere on the field and score. That makes him a unique weapon in the NFL versus a guy who might be a really good back between the tackles but is going to get 12, 13 yards if they get a great hole. And I think when the game comes down to now about scoring and what you're doing, you know, it comes to be. But I also think, and, you know, we talk about running backs and pay, whatever happened to the running backs became so out of whack because we, you know, we all get caught up in, oh, well, the highest paid running back makes X, and therefore, you know, you should never pay more. And then you look across the positions, and I remember when we did Todd's deal last year, you know, Andrew Norwell signed for basically more money than Todd Gurley. Yeah. Right? If anybody was sitting there and starting a franchise, I don't, and I'm not knocking Andrew Norwell, like, would you take a guard over the offensive MVP of the league? So I think there would become a huge inefficiency in, in running back salaries. But again, it takes the someone saying, okay, that's okay, we're one to admit that, versus, and when you look at what's happened at the receiver market exploding out of nowhere, you know, are the best running backs as valuable as, you know, the 10th best receiver? Yeah, probably. And I just think it's yeah. how people use them, how creatively we are with them. But you have to have a coach who knows what to do with them in a system rather than expecting them to say a 25 carry for 98 yard back who scores two touchdowns probably shouldn't be the highest paid back. But to the really good ones who can touch the ball in all phases, absolutely. Hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit to team construction, which you know sort of falls under your purview a bit more. I, I was wondering if you could sort of speak to how your process this time of year has evolved with all of the new information we've been talking about, next-gen stats, all of the volume of data that's coming in. Well, I think, you know, I was thinking back to our panel last year. We traded for Marcus Peters. Uh, day of, last, right? Day of the panel last year. So, Karim, you guys are on the clock with Antonio uh, today and the next <laughs> He's 30, definitely going to take questions about that. In the next, guys, 30, yeah. in the next 36 minutes. So, uh, you know, I think the one thing with roster construction that has become important, like I think the place where analytics is farthest evolved in the NFL is in draft picks and drafting yeah. and how we do that and who's had success because you have years of data of the combine and not, not the, how they do, but 40 times and shuttle times and you know, how height and weight, and you can blend that into ultimately success of players over time. Now it has to be system specific, what you ask guys to do you know, has to fit what you do. And I, but I think you know, this time of year when you get into the draft, it is important, but I also think when you get in free agency, the hardest part of free agency is it's, you know, it's who's available. It's not the best players in the league, it's who's there. And 
and trying to fit. And sometimes analytics are perfect, but I'll give you a, a great example. Uh, two years ago, we signed Robert Woods from the Bills. And when we did the contract, I mean, widely people thought we'd overpaid. And you know, maybe we did buy a little at the time based on the numbers. And there was nothing analytically about Robert that showed up that said, hey, he may be special. But what did show up is when Sean watched the tape, he saw a guy who was always open and the ball was never where it was supposed to be. Whether they were throwing at different guys, whether the routes weren't wrong, you know, sometimes the throws weren't there. He said, that guy in our offense will have great success. And sure enough, he, he has been an unbelievable player for us. And so I think there's this blend of what you need to do, whether it's analytics, whether it's to Kasim's point, film, you need to find the guys who fit what you do, not the overall, you know, hey, here are the top 100 players in the NFL and go get one. Well, and you guys do something very specific and unusual in terms of the simplicity of the offense and needing players who can do a lot of different things, wide receivers who can block, who can run out of different formations. I mean, do you, th do you guys have the same approach in terms of when you're looking for players, thinking, okay, this is our offense, we need this kind of guy, and perhaps the numbers can help us find him? Uh, so definitely, and it, it, it is team specific, I think. There, there are certain positions that how we use them is probably a little bit different than everyone else in the league. All of our tight ends block a good deal, you know, and that's not the case for tight ends across the league, and so that changes how. Um, so I'll go back tomorrow, back to Pittsburgh, and I'll be modeling all the players, looking at their combine statistics, their college production, and uh, trying to figure out who are going to be the best pros, and that uh, those team-specific factors certainly play into it. And just uh, you know, uh, um, another comment on Kevin's points, I think another thing that you're seeing with analytics in terms of team building is that what comes with it is um, a little bit more creativity with strategy. And I think you're seeing uh, teams treat draft picks differently. So you know, the, the Rams have traded a lot of draft picks for, for uh, free agents, for veterans. So it's like one way to use it. Uh, you see teams using the compensatory pick system a little bit differently right. and gaining some advantages there. Uh, on draft day, I think you see more trades now than you did five years ago. And there's a little bit more fluidity in that market. So all of these things are sort of uh, changing over time as well. In your draft prep process, when you start looking at prospects from a numbers perspective, what are you looking for? Well, so I'm not working for a team, you know, right now with their draft prep. So I approach it from like the outsider's perspective that I know I'm not helping anybody make these picks. So my perspective is uh, I'm just analyzing the landscape of what teams really need with their rosters. And I'm looking at uh, based upon what they currently have, what they're losing, figuring out what I think they need to do that maybe is different than the perspective that uh, the rest of the league has of these teams. Now, um, some teams faced a very easy schedule in this capacity last season that uh, I think are in for a lot more difficult time this year, and then they lost, you know, maybe they faced a lot of easy pass rushes last year, and then they're losing with their left tackle, and so they, they might replace him with somebody, but I, I feel differently about that person. So I'm already kind of, I'm still looking at all the players uh, from the draft perspective, but I'm not studying and charting out, you know, what their exact measurables are. Um, I do think that uh, there are a lot of models that do that. You know, what are the most important ingredients for these different players? Um, but, you know, right now I'm sort of focusing a lot of my effort on uh, understanding what the teams were last year, the new coaches that came in, what, are, what is their direction with these teams for, the, for this upcoming season, and, uh, and where can I start to look for, for value in what, I'm, you know, what I think will happen in, in 2019. I think one of the interesting things that's happened with analytics when we're talking about too, it's how you evaluate your own team coming off of the last season, right? Like, mm. is there a player who had a breakout year? Is it sustainable? Or 
was it a random set of occurrences where they caught four long passes where the corner fell down and all of a sudden you think you've got a deep threat who can't actually you know, run? And I, I think that's where we're all trying to get smarter too is really trying to say, okay, from our own eyes, like the year we had, who played well, who didn't? What do the numbers say? Like what do our evaluations say? And can we rely upon that person for next year? And not just on the did they play well or did they not, but mix it into the whole formula of, you know, we played an easier record or the teams we played, you know, had backup quarterbacks so our defenses, right. you know, are better. And I, I'll give you a great example of this from our world. There's a, if you look online, people say, I think without Aqib Tlaib, we gave up 31 points a game. With Aqib Tlaib in the lineup, we gave up 17, which is a huge difference. We would have been second in the league in those games. But I think on average, we played only offenses in the bottom quarter of the league when Aqib was in the lineup. I mean, miss so... You can't just say, okay, that group worked. Yeah. You have to look at who we played, how we did it, versus when we played the Chiefs and the Saints and all those other teams that, that were different. I think that's what's, as you go into the next year, it's most important to make sure you know what worked and didn't work the prior year and what you actually need to fix, right. rather relying upon something more nebulous. And, that, and that's one of the things I think is the, is the context of the analytics. I mean, it's, it's real easy to look at just the numbers at the end of the year, but you have to understand who was in those games, what type of opponents were they playing. You have to, I mean, so that's why you can't just look at like the year-end data. You have to really be able to contextualize it and understand the context of everything that we're looking at because as we discussed previously the NFL is such a small sample size sport you really do have to you have to be able to make conclusions based on a limited set of data but you have to uh, realize where the limits are and not go too far beyond that and if you don't apply context to what you're looking at with like um, uh, just a just different things that you're incorporating in support of the numbers or alongside the numbers, then you're, you're going to possibly come my way with conclusions that just are, are patently wrong, like you just mentioned with the Aqib Tlaib. I think you, Kevin, in your, in your example, you kind of highlight something important about whole, which is there are smart stats and there are dumb stats, right? And now I'm really hoping I didn't make that point about Aqib Tlaib on any show. <laughs> Did you guys know he, they, when he was in the game? No, um, but yeah, like we have a, like, Football nerds, we always make fun of QB wins, right? Wins is not a quarterback statistic. I don't care who thinks it is. But, you know, the, the dream of next-gen stats is that they're smart stats, that we can actually look at, like, really, really specific things that players are doing in the game. Now, on the outside, the public, we're hearing, oh, Tyreek Hill reached 50 miles an hour or whatever. That's cool, I guess, but it, I know he's fast. Thanks, next-gen stats. But you guys are seeing other stuff. And I was wondering, with regards to you know, next-gen stats, is that helping you evaluate your, evaluate your own players, look at potential trades? What are you seeing when you look at those stats, Grim? Uh, absolutely. I think, I think it will, and it's getting there. But we're, we're still at this nascent stage with it, just kind of learning our way around the data. Um, but I think it's going to do all of those things. It's going to help us contextualize some things uh, to be able to see. You know, our, our scouts are out watching um, receivers play and it's hard to see how fast they're running because it depends on how fast the corner covering them yeah. is running and at the college level there's so many players uh, makes it hard to tell and when we have tracking data at the NFL level now we know the exact speeds and I agree with you sort of the the top end speeds are are interesting but it takes a player you know 40 yards to get to the top end speed so only a few guys are going to get there and uh, it'll be interesting when they do but it's such a small piece of it um, I think the other thing that's really exciting to me uh, about next gen stats is that um, not only does it allow all of these new areas of inquiry, but um, it allows it to, uh, it sort of allows us to communicate them better. And um, 
I, for this, a part of the reason, one of the reasons I, I love this conference is I get to see all of the other sports. And in, in terms of analytics, I think we can agree football is like a, a couple cycles behind where basketball or baseball are. And you, so you see like the inspiration of like what's happened to them. And I imagine you know, when basketball got tracking data and all of a sudden now you can recognize a pick and roll. Uh, on film, and what does that mean? So it means that like now you can find all the pick and rolls. You can find all the pick and rolls for a couple of players. You can look at how they might uh, be defended in different ways. You can find who's more effective. Uh, you can get a film cut up and give it to a coach, and and now quality control can kind of just look at that cut up in in 30 seconds instead of spending three hours to do it. And all of those things combined, they just make a huge difference in terms of communication. Because now the analyst is able to talk in terms of pick and roll. So they're able to speak the same language um, as the coach, uh, as the scout, et cetera. So because NextGen Stats is tracking the player's movement through space, now we can talk about things in the same way. Um, you know, all the terms that scouts use, change of direction, burst, all these things, we're able to measure those things precisely and communicate them. And both of those things are uh, really exciting. Is this entering the free agency trade conversation? Like I always, you know, think about how Scott Boris famously brings those 300 page PowerPoints or whatever, and he's like, here are all the statistics. Like, is that something we're seeing yet in football where, I don't know, maybe a wide receiver's agent's like, actually, he gets this amount of separation, and are we there yet in football where we're having those sort of next level conversations? You know, I, I think you, you do get there. Agents tend to cherry pick, I think, to Warren's point. I mean, when we went through the Aaron Donald negotiations, they kept telling us how many, you know, PFF ranked him the best player on the planet <laughs> every year. And we're like, we, we get that. We see that. You know, that, that's, that's not novel. Now, the same agency had another player on our team who PFF hated. They always told us PFF was wrong about that guy, right about Aaron. And, you know, so I think you get into these, these points where you're trying to individualize. And I think the hardest thing is you can't individualize football like yeah. to some degree and try to distill it down. And right. you know, that is the, the best values. And I think there will be elements in, because someone's got it right, like next gen, whether it's machine learning, AI, the things that you'll be able to do will make it easier and then find you know, maybe the same genres of, of players. But ultimately, you know, there's gotta be a blend of you know, the evaluations you see, the fit for your team and trades and free agency. And look, what someone doesn't do well that a that a grading system or an analytic system may not like may not be what you do on your team at all. And therefore, you may not care as much about that deficiency that shows up somewhere else or, or vice versa. And I think that's the, you know, ultimately, you can only measure what players do based on what we ask them to do. And mm -hmm. if you're going to ask them to do something different, you are always going to have a projection, whether it's analytics or not, on whether they can do that versus what they've been asked to do previously. Hmm. I mean, I'm fascinated by the next-gen stats. I know that, uh, I think it's Michael Lopez did a great job with the Big Data Bowl that was at the Combine. Um, you know, there's just so much that you can learn from that. I, just to talk about play action, you know, what is the exact, which linebackers are more likely to bite yeah. on that? And what about when it's, it's run two plays in a row or different situations, different parts of the field? When is it most likely to see success? Or, you know, I was talking earlier about how efficient passing on first downs has become in the NFL. Well, you, if you're the defense, you have to figure out how am I going to counter that? What am I going to do? Um, and if a lot of these uh, run plays are being phased out in favor of short passes, then I think DBs maybe should look to jam a lot more at the line of scrimmage, play really tight. So which wide receivers are most effective, affected by 
jams on first and 10 and uh, based upon like what personnel they're in and, and what types of routes. So there, there's just a lot that I'm fascinated with that next gen ultimately will be able to help us with from the analytics perspective. I, I would love for it to get even more evolved than it currently is with regard to you know, exactly where a player's like hands might be placed <laughs> when he comes off the ball. Um, the, the exact nature of like steps and, and what a defensive ta how a defensive tackle is impacted by this particular blocking scheme and um, on third and long how much you know how aggressive are the defensive tackles how much push can you get different things like that um, I think are going to be fascinating to ultimately figure out but I think we are in a early stage with it um, but like I said the teams that are going to tackle that quickly and figure it out understand it and apply it are going to separate themselves out. And my one fear for just league-wide, I know we have the draft process and everything's about equality and trying to get, obviously we know that no, we don't have a lot of equality in the NFL. Uh, some of the teams that are bad tend to stay bad for various different reasons. Um, I fear that like the teams that are down at that bottom half where the coaches are just fighting for job security yeah. and th th they're not going to invest as much and then the teams that are really good who have coaches they, that are on long-term contracts that they believe in and really good quarterbacks, they're going to be ones who are more interested in digging into that data with their time and, and we could see that you know, diverge a little bit further. Well, that's something I, was, I wanted to ask Sashi, but I, now I want to ask you guys and just get your thoughts on this concept of timelines and teams that are bad that stay bad, and the idea of teardowns, which are obviously much more accepted in other sports than they are in football, I think we can all agree on that. Do you think that's changing at all? Do you think views on, because when I say the word timeline, because you know, that's just not a thing in the NFL. You're not gonna take three or four years to go through that cycle, and some of it is the nature of the sport and the nature of fandom and so few games, but do you feel like attitudes towards winning and short-termism and what a team, how, how a team will be built, perhaps take advantage of that, are changing at all? I, I think they should be. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't love the fact that, you know, in Denver, they went out and acquired Joe Flacco right. uh, as a stopgap. I mean, I didn't understand that move. I would rather be a team that's bad, like the Cleveland Browns were for a couple of years and get all the hate and vitriol from all the people and then end up getting a good quarterback that you believe in, getting a coach that you believe in, and rebuilding. I think it's impossible for teams that are mediocre and, and struggling with quarterbacks that aren't acceptable level of play to pay those guys at a higher rate and compete with the teams like the Rams who have a quarterback on a rookie deal or like the Patriots who have a quarterback that they should probably be paying a lot more than what they are. How are you going to compete with teams that have lower cost quarterbacks and good coaching? And you're not going to with a middling quarterback. So I think it needs to become more acceptable to do that. Uh, will, will we get there? I hope so. I think it'll depend a little bit on sort of like the, the fans' appetite for, for that. Right. Um, but I also think like football's, uh, there, there are factors that are different about football that make it so that tanking is probably not necessary to build a winning team. So it's not like basketball where you need to have that top five pick to, like, to get yourself up to that level. Uh, and it's not like baseball where there's this big gap in salaries and you have to have all of these like, cost control people. I think the, the salary range for football teams, Kevin can probably speak to a little bit better than I can, but is, is a little more narrow. And so you see teams like um, you know, Kansas City successfully changed their quarterback and went from uh, a team that, that was a 
playoff team that was, that was already a good team uh, and then kind of uh, propelled themselves to one of the top teams in the league and they're able to get that quarterback with um, you know, a 10th or 12th overall pick. They didn't have to have uh, a top five pick to do it. So I think you know, there, there's certainly advantages and Cleveland's uh, reap, reaping the rewards of, of, of doing that for a couple of years. Uh, but it's also the case that I don't think it's necessary, uh, as necessary in football as it is in other sports. I think it's one of the things in football that the goal of tanking winds up being, it's a lot harder to achieve than it is in other sports. Like if you're a basketball team right now, you're the Knicks, like there are going to be a ton of really good free agents that if you have two max salary slots, you might get them, right? The whole goal of tanking is to increase your odds to get a major dominant star who can transform your team. In football, the sole reason to tank is so that you pick high in a year in which there's a good quarterback that meets your needs, right? You're, it's a really narrow goal you're trying to achieve because otherwise there is no reason to tank. You can build teams a lot of different ways. The league is designed for everybody to go eight and eight and to have parity, you know, the way the draft's set up. In baseball, you're trying to get, you know, young players on long-term cost control contracts you know, that you can stay ahead. And I think in football, it's just not necessary. And look, I mean, it's great we're sitting in the position we're in. We were really bad for a long time without trying to tank, so we're no experts on, you know, <laughs> you know we lost trying to win, so I'm not saying we know, you know how, how we should do it. But I do think if you're a team right now that's thinking about tanking, do you know who the quarterbacks are going to be in two years right. that are going to be good? good? Are they going to fit really your good. system that you do versus, hey, how do we go build the best possible team? Because you can contend yeah. and you can – make a trade. And I think with the Chiefs, it is great. Like you can develop a quarterback while you have a good one. But in a league where there's no revenue, you know, there's revenue disparity, but there's no spending disparity. Every team can spend to the salary cap. Every team can have the same amount of draft picks. You know, you have franchise tags to keep your players, you know, in maybe some other ways. You can't like, there is no reason that a team in any market should be at a worse off perspective. And so I don't think tanking is necessary. Now, if you're sitting there and saying, would we rather go is there a difference between 6 and 10 and 3 and 13? No, there's probably not a difference right. between 6 and 10 and 3 and 13. But there's a huge difference between being 9 and 7 and 6 and 10. And the difference between 6 and 10 and 9 and 7 is a couple of plays a year, right? A ball bounces your way. You get an easier schedule. I, that's where I just, I think tanking doesn't make a ton of sense because you are having a real narrow probability that it could work. Well... Speaking of sort of team building and quarterbacks, I mean, you guys, you talked about the Marcus Peters trade last year. A lot of people described what the Rams did as going all in, um, which now I feel like this notion that if you've got the rookie quarterback, again, with timelines, taking advantage of that timeline, capitalizing on it, we think of it as being pretty normal. But really, that wasn't a common strategy until obviously with the new CBA and how contracts change. Do you think that's sort of, a, I don't want to say the norm now because not every team is doing it, but do you look around the league and say, yeah, this is an approach that we're going to continue seeing in the NFL? Well, I think one of the things that's happened too is there's, you know, with the growth of the salary caps, teams are a little bit more savvy in how they use it. I think through analytics and the players we choose, there's a little bit more salary cap room available. People can make more trades. Compensatory draft picks are now tradable. So the weapons you have to make your team better are, are far greater. So if you find yourself in a situation like we were last year where you had Jared Goff on a rookie contract. You had a pretty good team that won a division but disappointed in the playoffs. Like, how do you go make your team better? You try to use all avenues, trades, the draft, and how you do it. You know, for, I always thought one of the craziest misnomers is that we were all in last year. I mean, we sit up here, we have 
seven draft picks, three in the top 100. We have 30-something million dollars of salary cap space and 80, 90 next year. I mean, it was, we were aggressive, but I, I think the league, I think fans, and whether it's social media, they demand you be aggressive now when you run teams. It doesn't, and tanking is almost the same way. People want to see you be active with the strategy to try to win, whether that's short-term or long-term. But in the NFL, and this is where I give Kasim and the Steelers credit, and the Patriots certainly, it's impossible to win year after year and have that consistency. You see so many teams go up and down, and so the best long-term plans don't always hold up. Guys get hurt. You know, things happen. The league changes. You have a great defensive head coach, but the league swings the other way. And I think you have to take every year and how do you have your best possible team for us in 2019 as the Rams, knowing you don't want to sacrifice your future and being cognizant of that. Now, is that easier on a rookie quarterback deal? Sure. But I don't want to think that two years from now, Jared Goff gets paid, that we won't be able to compete. You just have to figure out how you're aggressive with that and and how you do it. Because there have been plenty of teams that win consistently, that have quarterbacks that aren't on rookie contracts. Right. Well, I mean, looking at the playoff teams, it just seems like, yes, you can pay a quarterback. It just has to be the right quarterback. Because with rookies, there's a little bit of room, but you're not seeing any mediocre, highly paid veterans anymore in the postseason. You mentioned something I just wanted to touch on before we get to the questions, which is that we were talking about the effect that um, sort of analytical decision-making has on roster construction. And, and with the draft coming up, you mentioned we're seeing more trades Obviously, teams trading down. Shout out to Sashi again. Like, why do you think that's happening more now? Uh, I, I think it's a, a little different mindset that people are just, um, as, you, as you bring in these analytic staffs and, and people that have outside perspectives, you have diverse opinions, and people are exploring the space of like what can be done. And so uh, it's, it's not the case anymore that I think uh, teams have their draft allocation, and they're like, OK, we have seven picks. We're going to take seven people. So. You get to a point in a draft and you feel like, well, we're maybe not going to be able to get our guy at this spot, but if we give up a seventh round pick and, and move up a couple spots, we'll be able to get our guy and he's important enough, then, then teams will do that. And if the other thing is true, if, you know, if a team is, really needs a, a corner and they're indifferent between a few corners and they have an opportunity to move back 10, 10 spots and, and uh, uh, pick up an extra pick for that year or the next year, teams are doing it. So I think there's an open-mindedness that's there. and, and um, because, you know, as it starts, as more and more teams do it, then it, it creates this market that uh, creates an opportunity for more and more teams to do it as well. Um, so we're under 15 now, and we have gotten a lot of questions. I don't know how they're getting to me, but they are. Oh, okay. So I'm going to, these are from the audience. I'm going to show you guys some. First one is, if you could wave a magic wand and obtain a metric that quantified some aspect of a player's game that you can't get now, what would it be? Hmm. I'll speak up. It would, to me, it would be something, uh, ability to learn, mental acuity, speed to process. Yeah. Uh, I think most of the times we make mistakes in the NFL on player evaluations. It's not on physical traits, it's on mental traits. And so I think if you were trying to learn, there are lots of things we can measure, but we can't measure, you know, how, if a receiver comes off the line, how quickly they recognize the coverage and what their choice route should be. So to me, it wouldn't be physical, it would be mental. Yeah, I think that it's, it's hard to say with the physical stuff because we have all of this data and we still haven't extracted all the value from the next-gen stats that, that should be able to tell us a lot of the physical stuff. So mental stuff is, uh, I think, is a great answer, both in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the decision-making ability, the football intelligence, you know, for middle linebacker with everything going, or quarterback with everything going around them, how quickly are they going to hit the hole? Are they going to make the right decision? Also, work ethic stuff. Um, you know, 
the NFL is a grind, doing it professionally, you know, how well can we project which players are going to adapt to that uh, and, and succeed and thrive in that. And I think there's also, um, there's also uh, personality aspects that are uh, difficult to measure, but you know, who's going to be a great teammate, who, uh, like, who do you want to play with, who's going to make you better, all of those factors are important as well. Where would AB rank on that? <laughs> no comment. Question from him. Um, Warren, I'm going to send this one your way first. Do you think the Patriots' use of 22 personnel in the Super Bowl will encourage teams to use heavy personnel groupings more often, especially if they lack a true deep threat to stretch the defense vertically? I, I hope so. Um, I think personnel diversity is very important. Um, I think that you being good at something that other teams don't do as often, and if you're really good at one thing, like the Patriots use so much 21 personnel, and having to deal with that fullback is very different on a one game, I'm going to play the Patriots, how am I going to deal with having to deal with their fullback out there so much? Um, you know, the Rams use a ton of 11 personnel and, and are very diverse with that formation. So I think having uh, the ability to do something different and be really good at it that a team's defense is then going to have to spend time on and then you can choose to deploy it or not. Right. And when you're going to deploy it, uh, I think that creates an extreme edge. Um, this is interesting. How highly do analytics value special teams play? Well, considering we've talked zero about special teams at all while we're up here, that might not be great. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm sure look yeah, at that so a I, lot. I, I work with Danny Smith, our special teams coach. Um, obviously, we practice special teams every day, and it's, it's a focus of one of our days during the week. So special teams is important. Um, it, it, Offense and defense, it's just more snaps and more plays. Right, and, yeah. and as the league is changing, now kickoffs have become uh, less important. So, you know, some ways there's, there's less to do. Uh, and in some ways, the, the importance of, of those aspects are being reduced. But special teams is still a big part of our game. Yeah, certainly you guys have. Well, you know, I think one of the things you look at in a place roster is just like, do you, need, do you actually need a kickoff returner now? Yeah. Right, if you look at the actual way the game is played, if you have a, a good offense, which I would like to hope we do, like, You'd rather just know you get the ball at the 25-yard line than start any like chances you're going to get it farther or so low And you look at the analytics. So I think it comes down to roster construction. I always think the other thing about special teams, and I don't, this is much analytics, but the young players who start to excel in special teams usually are your starters a couple years later. And so if there's a better way to quantify who's excelling, yeah. you start to see two years from now who your Sam linebacker might be who right now is just on the punt block unit. Even though the skill set and the... What he's yes. actually doing is entirely different. Uh, well, this kind of cuts to what we were talking about earlier, vis-a-vis -vis building around rookie quarterback. Uh, to manage salaries, should teams who believe they can develop quarterbacks consider trading their quarterback for a high draft pick before his rookie deal expires? Our colleague Bill Barnwell had a column where he proposed this strategy earlier in the year, not you know, entirely seriously, but I mean, what do you guys think about that in general? And it sort of cuts to this concept of how more and more teams see the rookie quarterback as something to build around. Feels like a B. Um, <laughs> it, it's like a risky strategy to do it. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd like to see another team do it to, to see the experiment kind of play out. <laughs> um, I, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is just, I think, you know, partly because football is small sample and you right. don't have many games, you don't have many reps. Uh, practice reps aren't the same as, as game reps. 
and, and continuity matters a lot. So um, see it with our offensive line that have had the same people for a couple years now and they work well. They work well because it's incredible individuals, but they've been working well together. And obviously the same is true for, for the quarterback. The, for the quarterback to have a rapport with a wide receiver, with a running back, et cetera, and build that over time, it's something that, um, you know, football is not going to be as plug and play as, as baseball might be, where you can just bring in another third baseman and it's not going to affect things. There's going to be all of these interactions. Coaches' jobs in the NFL to coordinate these 11 players at yes. sub-second levels is incredibly difficult. And if you have that and you figured it out, um, I'd be reluctant to, to give that away. Mm -hmm. I mean, would you rather have a C-plus rookie quarterback or a B-minus veteran who's making $18 million a year? I would rather have, I would rather get rid of both of them, but the the issue the issue the issue is that when you're when you were talking about the the quarterback, you know where is he at that fourth year? You know right. if you get a first round quarterback, you have the fifth year option. Um, but I mean I'll just throw a guy's name out there. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky, you know what? Where do we think Mitchell Trubisky is going to be? Because I think one of the big problems that teams have is. Joe Flacco, you have a quarterback who ends up doing well, the team's successful, but he's on the rookie deal, it's easier to build your team, and then you're in that last year and you're like, okay, now do we pay this guy? Right. Or do we let him walk and now we might be worse next year and what's that gonna say to the fans? What's the public perception going to be of our team and our strategy at that point? Uh, so the league has been getting more aggressive in, in, in moves around league free agency and things like that. I would like to see a team try to be aggressive from that perspective um, and not care what the immediate, you know, repercussions are from the public perspective are. Look, I think Bill Barnwell's personal goal in life is to get Jared Goff traded, right? So I, <laughs> I you know, I, so I, I laugh when we read about it. Conceptually, you, you can understand why. Um, and, and the data, and I think this gets back to you know, the teams, when you look at, okay, teams that have paid quarterbacks, what has happened to them and, you know, what their record. And, right. But, you know, I, we may not always have cause and effect right on that. You know, Ben seems to have certainly done fine for you guys and you've paid him well. Tom Brady's done well. You know, Drew Brees. I mean, it's usually a mixed bag. And I think that's true in the league. There are teams that are up and down in a league that's volatile. You're going to get a lot of different results. But I think there are a couple of different things that come into play, which is one is who are your coaches? You know, and you know, what is your long-term trajectory? And where do you think that money can be best spent? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's great to say, don't pay a quarterback $30 million. But if you wind up with three $10 million players in return, are you actually that much better? Yeah. Right, like, are we at the point now where the alternative of what you're going to do, you know, with the money, if we looked at the next three players next week in free agency who get $10 million, you may not trade any of, whether we're talking about quarterbacks who we don't like or not like, you still may not trade right. you know, for that. So I think it's this, you know, fans, and I think media, have an infatuation with salary cap space and draft picks. Ultimately, they turn into players. Yeah. I mean, we, we made a great trade when we did RG3, you know, but it didn't pan out. I mean, you look at the, I mean, I think with the most painful thing on earth, when you look at the Julio Jones trade with the Browns and who they took, but at the time when it was two ones and a four, it's like, oh, it sounds great. When you see it's a fullback, you right. never took a snap, it's not as good. And I think the, you know, the college game, the fact that these quarterbacks are coming in and having more success quickly, I think lends credence to that you can do it. But I also think there's a huge team building component to this. If you have a quarterback who is a good player, who is well-respected in your locker room, who has become a leader, ripping that person out as they get better 
makes everybody else on the team realize how expendable they are. Like, and they, it's a commodities business. That's imperfect as well. That will cause you other issues to deal with down the line. Now, if you know the guy is a B minus or C plus, I think Warren's right. Like, I don't want to B minus or, or C plus, um, but I have no problem paying an A minus or an A, you know, A plus money. And I think we don't really, teams don't seem to really know too, but I, I, it's easy for me to say B plus or C minus, but it's not like teams actually look at them and are able to. I, I think your point about I, how we idealize opportunity cost is, well, important and something like we don't talk about, like with Rogers, for example, got his big contract and I, you'd hear people saying, oh, that's why they're, now they're paying Aaron Rodgers, whatever, $33 million. Well, if they paid him like $24 million, first of all, it's the Packers, so it's not like they would have spent the money and gone out in free agents anyways. Like, like that would have really made a massive difference. It's kind of curious to me that people get so nervous about these huge quarterback contracts and the opportunity cost when it's not always, I don't know, it doesn't always result in It's a lot easier to find a left guard and a middle linebacker at the lower cost on the salary curve than it is a quarterback. And, and I think the... You know, the opportunity cost is not always what we think it is. Even the data is going to be mixed, period. Next question. There's been, we have time for a couple more, a recent Twitter debate as to who is better at their apex, Eli or Flacco? Who's having this debate? <laughs> um, how do you evaluate players effectively, this is an interesting question, though, through analytics that are in fundamentally different coaching schemes with surrounding talent? Hmm. Rely on rely on film study. Rely on the scouts that that understand. You know these are the different throws they're being asked to make. And at at some level, you're always going to be going to be comparing apples to oranges. So right. um, they're going to be asked to do different things. Uh, but there are you know you can normalize some stuff like how well is he throwing deep outs, the difficult passes, how much is he making checks at the line, like to what degree is he the offensive coordinator at the line. And so uh, it, as much as we can see, we can try to evaluate. But um, we can do it a little with numbers, but I think more often than not, it's going to be about that film study and, and all of those all of those pieces of information that you can uh, bring to bring to bear when you have experienced football people really studying these guys. Thoughts? Either of you guys? I prefer not to think about Joe Flacco versus Eli Manning, if possible. <laughs> but Karim's answer was a good one. Yeah, I mean, I look at it. You know, we have the example of Jared, right? Who, you know, after his first year, everybody had gone 0 and 7. His metrics were. Terrible, you know, everybody considered him a bust. And, you know, the next two years, you know, he's won two divisions, gone to the Super Bowl. We've led the NFL in scoring over that time. And I always say, if you took for Jared, if he had been drafted in 2017 and just played those two years, right now he would be mentioned as one of the potentially the greatest of all time with his first two years. But he always carries the 0 and 7 around yeah. as if that was the start of his career. And I think that's where we get to. You can't measure different systems, different coaches, you know, different players you know, and say that they're apples to apples. As much as we want to try to normalize through statistics, you know, it is your supporting cast. It is who your offensive line is, you know, and, and what the situations are. Um, that's interesting. Do you think football can or will catch up to baseball and basketball in the next five years in, in terms of analytics? <laughs> You can say no. <laughs> I think some of the gap is, is going to close now, now that we have access to that data. I, I think, you know, with, with baseball, because you have independent observations in a typical play, right. you're looking at two people. It's just it, um, that type of formal statistical analysis, it just lends itself to it. And with 11 people, um, even with the tracking data, it's, it's really hard to separate everything out. So, like, the, the net impact of analytics overall, yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit smaller in football. And so it's, it's never going to completely close that gap. 
I, I would say no, uh, even as optimistic as I would, am, I don't think it's going to get to that level. Uh, they could really accelerate that if they gave away the data, you know, let, let smart people out there in the audience and elsewhere look at the next gen data and, and play around with it. That would be a quicker way for us to get there. But quicker I'm for you, but maybe not for me. <laughs> true. I mean, at some point we're competing, but I, I think it's I don't think we'll get to the level of baseball. I think, it, look, it's such a smaller sample size, but also the game is different, right? I think to Warren's point, you talk about play action in baseball. It's not like a ball is hit to left field, but the guy thinks it's a grounder to first, so he starts running to first, you know, and completely leaves left field, you know, <laughs> the same way a linebacker does on a run and pass, right? So there's a human element in football yeah. and strategic that's very different. But I think we will get much better as we get the next gen, as we continue to evolve with teams of, trying to figure out what it, where exactly that line is, play calling, decision making, and ultimately draft decisions. And I think you will see in the next 10 years a massive shift, but it will never be to the same as the other leagues. I, th and I think it, it, it'll, it'll go in a slightly different direction too, right? So because football is different, it doesn't mean that um, the types of statistical analysis that work in baseball probably won't be there, but because there are different problems, there'll be different solutions, and I think analytics will play a role in all of that as well. All right, well, guys, thank you so much for your great questions. And thank you guys for participating. This is really interesting. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.